many people find themselves going down a career path that does not bring them satisfaction. A lawyer finds himself constantly working cases he doesn't care about. A student in medical school gets completely burned out from hospital bureaucracy. An investment banker no longer finds joy in the accounting statements that she used to enthusiastically study. Startups might offer a different career path. Within a startup, an employee can often find creativity, limited bureaucracy, and highly variable reward structures. These ingredients make the world of startups both refreshing and intimidating to someone who feels stuck in a career that no longer gives them joy or excitement. Breaking into Startups is a podcast about people coming from non-traditional backgrounds and making their way into startups. Breaking into Startups is run by Arthur and Timmer Meister and Ruben Harris, and they join me for a conversation about how they migrated from more traditional careers to startups and how many other people are doing the same. I really enjoyed talking to Arthur and Timmer and Ruben. They joined me in my apartment for some stew and some fish and some sweet potatoes that we ate before this interview, and it made for a nice, warm setting. And so uh, it's a pleasure getting to know these guys, and I hope you enjoy this episode, and you should definitely check out their podcast, Breaking Into Startups. Arthur Meister, Timmer Meister, and Ruben Harris are the creators of Breaking Into Startups. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Thanks for having us. When I started Software Engineering Daily, I was very strict about having shows that were purely about engineering and technology. I decided that my podcast was not going to be about entrepreneurship or business. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the raw technologies, but over time, I've talked to listeners, and what many of them are interested in is finding a way to level up. And there are some listeners who have been in tech for a while, and some of them who are just getting started. The The Breaking, Breaking Into Startups podcast is focused on the second category. It's mostly people who are just starting out in technology, or they're looking to transition into technology, why is this such an important topic today? Why are there so many people that are trying to transition into technology? Yeah, Jeff. Well, thanks for having us on the show. Um, um, I have a twin brother, Arthur. So when you guys hear my voice, it's Timor. Um, and uh, that's actually a great question. And uh, the three of us, um, when we came together, we kind of looked around and we started to realize that tech is no longer an industry. And in the future, every industry is going to be driven by tech and uh, at that time, we weren't doing technology, we weren't technical, and we said, hey, what is it gonna take for us to acquire the skills to participate in this economy? And over the, over the several years after we had that realization, we were able to break in. So then we said, how do we make more people interested in technology, and how do we help them cross that bridge into the tech world? And so, so, so the podcast is called Breaking Into Startups. It sounds like you really mean breaking into tech. Is that accurate? Yeah, no, essentially, like, at the end of the day, we're focused on skills, skill development, because um, the way that we think about things is that um, our education system is not currently built to keep up with the pace of technology, and there's all these alternative forms of education that are coming up in order for people to get the skills, but the general population um, is not aware of the roles that exist, and even if they do, they don't know how to get them, and so you want to kind of focus on on those things, um, and, you know, 
Arthur Timo and I talk a lot about how there are another category of people that know about the roles that exist. They know that they need to get the skills. They know how to get them. But a lot of times they suffer from imposter syndrome because they feel like the technology industry only has a certain demographic in here that exists, which is why we focus on people uh, from non-traditional backgrounds um, because it's it's not necessarily about race because we feel that systemic, systemic barriers and class issues affect people from all walks of life. Um, but if they see someone that they can relate to uh, that was able to make it, uh, that's that's something that can encourage them to take that first step. One of the core ideas of your show that resonates with me is that for many people in our generation, I think you guys are all, what, 27, 28, 26, something somewhere around Late there? 20s. So. 29. 29, okay. So I'm 28. But I feel like our generation, there was some element where science or technology was not exactly encouraged. And at certain points, it was even maybe discouraged. Like, we grew up in a time where mostly finance and law and medicine were the fashionable fields in, in when I think back to high school, like, that's, that's what people wanted to become. I don't think I even knew what an engineer was until my senior year of high school. Tell me if you if you agree with that, if you think that those are cultural pressures and how those cultural pressures affected you. Totally. Um, so I think there's a few great points that you bring up in that question. One of them is just kind of having the knowledge of what jobs are out there. When For us, when we were growing up, I mean, this was still like in the early days of the internet, so we were consumers of all these apps, services, but we had no idea what goes into building an app. And I think even now, there's very few people kind of out, outside of the tech industry who understand what product managers do, what engineers do. Um, a lot of people kind of see the CEO as the face of the product. Um, they think Mark Zuckerberg sole-handedly built Facebook, but in reality, they have thousands of employees who are tirelessly working on all these new features and um, launches. So um, I think part of it is just an information gap that a lot of people use Facebook every day, but they couldn't tell you what an A-B test was or why, uh, kind of how the newsfeed works. And and related to what um, what you said about the traditional um, fields that people tend to go to when they're in business schools, which is like, you know, banking, consulting, things like that, you know, Arthur and I, the way we met was when we were investment bankers, you know, we were following that traditional path that someone takes in business school. And if you uh, notice, a lot of these business schools are now focusing on entrepreneurship classes and innovation classes and things like that, because um, as Timor mentioned before, not only is it uh, is tech accelerating at a very fast pace and it's not lo- no longer an industry. Every industry is going to be driven by tech, even if it's not fully. And so the business people need to not only understand how business works, they need to know how tech companies work. And so, um, you know, startups are starting to become this thing that that's in vogue. So did all three of you work in finance? So Timor and I, we started finance undergrad. Um, I ended up going on Wall Street um, and I worked in investment for three years. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I was kind of fascinated by Warren Buffett. Sure. Um, the stock market. I grew up in New York where a lot of my friends' parents were in finance. And I think just by kind of living in New York, you just 
there's a couple of like major jobs, right? Like law, finance, um, medicine. And I was always drawn to numbers. I was pretty quantitative growing up. So to me, engineering wasn't even a kind of consideration because none of my friends, none of my relatives were engineers. Right. Um, but I had a ton of friends who were, uh, whose parents were in finance and I could relate to the stock market or I could relate to kind of what a what a like I don't know what finest people do, and I spend uh, almost like my entire college life and afterwards kind of working towards the dream of becoming a banker. And then once I got there, I realized that um, that's not what I wanted to do. And I think there's a lot of people out there who find themselves sacrificing four or five years of their life getting to a point where they realize that hey, I'm actually more passionate about something else. And then, but with with me, it wasn't necessarily that you know. I felt like I wasted my time in investment banking. You know, I didn't know about investment banking growing up. You know, I discovered investment banking uh, through, you know, being a classical musician and meeting business people. And someone suggested investment banking is the best place for you to go to learn a broad skill set across business in a little in a little bit of time, um, which is two years, right? And having that on your resume will put you in a good position to have exit opportunities. So. Once I started studying investment banking and how to get there, I realized that a lot of people go to investment banking to get a certain skill set and to also have exit opportunities for wherever they want to go. And so part of the reason why I think a lot of business schools are focusing on that is because uh, startups or programs that are teaching you how to get the technological skill set are going to teach you something in a short amount of time that's going to give you exit opportunities that are positioning yourself well across industries. Do you guys find it ironic how, you know, we we get, well, I mean, I was fascinated by numbers and finance and stuff too uh, growing up. And I my first job out of school was at a trading place. And at a certain point there, I was like, there's something wrong here because these symbols that we're trading, all of these things represent companies, many of whom are actually building value and I've never, and at that point, I was like, "Why haven't I never thought about like being at a place where it's actually you're actually building something that creates value instead of like making more liquidity or whatever kind of framing you put around investment banking or finance?" And I feel like there's some gulf in the way that early education works where it doesn't convey that to people that there are certain jobs where. You're kind of just like doing transactions, and there's other jobs where you are creating very tangible value. And my experience in tech is that creating that value that is that feels a lot more tangible is more satisfying. They may that may not be true. There may be people out there and who are in finance that are listening to this and who are thinking, "Oh no, I create liquidity. That's plenty of value for that's enough value for me." And I go, I you know, get eight hours of sleep every night, knowing comfortably that I'm creating a lot of value. Um, but I don't know. I am. I was not that way. I, maybe that resonates with you guys. Yeah, I definitely think it resonates um, with us because at some point in your life you get a job, and a lot of jobs you can get a job that pays you well. But then once you start doing the same task over and over again, in my case, I, I worked as a project manager for two years after college, um, managing iOS and Android mobile teams, and I was in meetings all day. And I was looking at what engineers were doing on a daily basis, ah. which was building these cool apps. They were uh, experimenting. They were actually solving problems. And I looked at my job, and I was basically just like a facilitator of ideas. And I had no ownership 
of the delivery of the product. So I think there's a lot of great project managers, and that role is like vital to the execution piece um, of any product. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, what is it that I enjoy doing, and what kind of stuff do you, do I want to be? What kind of problems do I want to be solving on a daily basis? And if you're a maker, then you probably will enjoy building something and then seeing it and showing it to your friends and family and having them use it too. Now, breaking into startups is about people from non-traditional backgrounds who want to get into technology. What is a non-traditional background? What is a traditional background? I'll say that um, you know this podcast um, is focused on software engineers. Our po- our our that you know from any background and including traditional and non-traditional. For our podcast, um, I'll say that. Anybody that tends to apply f- to the website and gets rejected because it doesn't fit the traditional filters, even if they have the skill set, are the type of people that we're focused on. Because there's a lot of people that get overlooked that might be, Hasib, for example, that was took him seven years to graduate. Um, he was a poker player. You know, he went through this boot camp. He was a teacher for a while, and he's a great engineer, um, but it was hard for him to apply through the website. So he had to go through hiring managers and getting referrals and warm introductions. Um, so it's anybody that has to um, kind of go around or the initial barriers or under or through the initial barriers um, to figure out a way to break in is the type of people that we're focused on. What are the people who do not have trouble getting through those filters? Um, it depends. I mean, we we've have we have a lot of people on our podcast that will be like people that are teen parents, people that never graduated college, people that uh, were formerly incarcerated, um, career switchers, artists, um, bankers and consultants, like you mentioned before. You know, all these people are very smart. A lot of these people have struggled. A lot of these people have gotten creative. They're resilient. They have tenacity. Um, but a lot of times they don't have the opportunity to interview to demonstrate that they actually have the skills. So we want a lot of times it's a matter of not just getting the skills and figuring out where to get the skills and the roles that exist. It's how to get the interview. And so not only will highlighting people that have figured it out um, help with the imposter syndrome thing, but it will also help people figure out how to get that initial interview. Yeah, and just to add to what Ruben is saying, um, we've interviewed someone who used to work, um, who used to be an army officer. And if you think about what goes into becoming um, an officer, is you have to go through training. You're very qualified. By the time you're done with your service, you have a skill set. You're you probably learned a lot about leadership and how to execute. But then after your service is over, you want to, let's say, break into tech, but people traditionally think that you need a four-year degree or you need to go through the traditional education system to do it. But let's be honest, if you're 28, 29, and you're getting out of the military, um, do you want to go through four years of college, get, take on more debt in order for you to become an engineer or become a designer or a startup? Um, or you can just say, hey, um, I know I have the, the drive to learn the skill set let's say it's engineering, I just need like something like Hack Reactor or App Academy, like a boot camp, to give me that skill set that I can learn in a matter of six months to a year, and then I can start contributing and start building these things at startups. So our goal is to feature those stories of people who came from the outside, they were able to figure out how to acquire the skill sets, and uh, by featuring those stories, more people will, ha- will see that it is possible to make it in tech. What are some of the strategies that the people that you've interviewed about how they made the transition 
into technology, what are some of the strategies they employ that have been successful? Um, so I think uh, like having a portfolio or having site projects that you could discuss, like tangible projects that highlight your skills and like what your um, that you actually understand um, what it's going to be like working in the workplace. Because for, for a lot of our listeners, it's probably going to be their first job. Um, and so when you're interviewing, uh, a lot of people have gone out of their way to cre- create either an open open source project or some app that um, went viral in Hacker News and kind of make themselves stand out. And then once they get into the interview, they can discuss the technical topics, the decisions they've made. And that makes it kind of easier for the hiring manager and people interviewing them to believe that, hey, this person would be able to add value to our team from day one. Um, I mean, I think Preeti, she, she was in our podcast. Her episode is going to air in a few weeks. She's super impressive. She was uh, in Metro Capital. She transitioned, um, taught herself how to code, went to Hack Reactor. And then for her final projects, she worked on this open source tool that was, uh, she wrote a blog post on it as well, which went viral. Um, but anyway, she created an open source project after, I don't know, three months of being in a boot camp. And that's super impressive that someone has so much determination to not only pick up on this new skill, new skill set, but also give back to the community by creating this new tool. And um, these are just some of the examples that people have used. But our podcast is not just f- focused on engineering; it's focused on um, like different disciplines as well, right? Like, so, like Kevin Lee, for example. Kevin Lee talks about if you're a product manager and you're encouraging people to ship things, build something with the team, ship it, demonstrate that you were able to do it. If you're a designer, you know build a portfolio we have mel woods on our podcast that literally went door to door with his portfolio in the cd he used to be a professional basketball player he studied a little bit of design in college and you know was able to meet some people and just start going door to door demonstrating that he had something and he had something tangible um you do have to also be able to tell your story as well um so you know even um even when i was trying to get into investment banking and break into investment banking um you know i follow this method called you know breaking into wall street that they talk about how to interview and how to tell your story and a lot of times you have to actually paint the picture so that people understand why you want to get into something and like i mentioned before you know as an artist I say, oh, yeah, I met business people. That's why I wanted to do banking. But then if you're like talking about if I'm coming from a random background that some people might not understand, I have to be able to explain why I want to go into tech. Um, Sometimes people don't see the reason why they have to do that. But at startups, it's a lot more risky to take a chance on someone because the teams tend to be smaller. Um, They have a burn rate. Um, You know, they they might not have the people or the resources to be able to mentor you and train you. So you have to be able to go, you know, from day one. And so um, you need to not only demonstrate that you have the skills, but you have to have to demonstrate that commitment, that passion and explain why that story makes sense so that you could fit well in that team. Because what's beautiful about startups is you can scale these things um, to millions of people and make an impact to millions of people with the, with a small number of people. Um, But, you guys all have to work well together too. So those dynamics are important too from a soft skills perspective too. That strategy of hacking on something and then having a portfolio of stuff that you've hacked on to show to people, that seems like a strategy that is quite a, can be quite effective for startups. But for example, I was in Seattle for two and a half years and around there were periods of time when I was looking for a job in that period applying to places like Amazon, Microsoft, Expedia. These are big corporations. 
for those types of jobs, I feel like there is no edge to be gained by having a portfolio of things. Maybe once you have your foot in the door, you can, you know, in the interview, you can maybe discuss it, but typically they ha- like their interview pipeline is structured so that, okay, cool, you have a side project, now let's do a whiteboard problem. Um, is this... Is this strategy of having a portfolio and extracurricular projects, is this something that is strictly useful for startups that is not necessarily useful for maybe getting a job at Amazon or Google or, you know, an older company? I think it's applicable to small companies and big companies. And, mm-hmm. you know, Timor and Arthur can elaborate. Um, I would say, like, with uh, startup, it's a more direct path. Yeah. A lot of times if you're dealing with, like, an Amazon or a Google or a Facebook, um you're going to have to do more digging to figure out who is the hiring manager or who, who works on the mm. team that also has a non-traditional background that figured out a way to get in. Okay. And then if you can grab a coffee with them, that's technically a quote-unquote informational meeting and you tell your story in a convincing way that also demonstrates that you have the skill mm-hmm. and turn them into your champion, this is kind of like sales, then you can get them to be your advocate internally and say, hey, we need to interview this. So woman you you, or this you, man. you encourage people to do LinkedIn hacking and like find out people who you can really go to and have direct interactions with them in order to get your foot in the door. Yeah, Timor can tell you about um, his cold emailing strategy and how he's identified people in that regard. Yeah, and I'll I'll tell you guys um, in a second. But Jeff, to your question um, to Ruben before this. Um, I think it just comes down to what job you're applying for and identifying what is that interview going to be like. So one of the things that we want to accomplish with our podcast is featuring stories of people who broke in so they can share what the interview was like with these companies. And the army veteran that I mentioned, he's actually working not for a startup, but he's working for Amazon Music. So in his case, I think having a portfolio helped, but Hack Reactor also emphasizes learning data structures, practicing algorithm problems and him going in into an interview even against um, someone who might be graduating from college he knew he knew what the format of the interview is going to be like and uh, we want all of our listeners to also be aware of like if you're applying for sales jobs uh, listen to the episodes with our folks who say what are those sales interviews are like so that you can prepare better for them Um, Ruben to your question about um, cold emails uh, I think one thing that we just realized uh, after sending out a lot of applications and submitting them online is there's nothing like connecting with someone on a person like on a personal basis and then having that person become your advocate. So something that I did for about two months after App Academy is I would wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning and then I would send out five cold emails to various CEOs, hiring managers, other engineers at startups that, that I was really interested in. So it wasn't just startups that um I just like picked out a list from Google and then I started going down the list one by one. It was actually companies that I believe in their mission. I respected their founders and I wanted to connect and just become friends with those people and get their advice. So I would just reach out to them and find something in common. For each email, I would probably spend close to 30 minutes to an hour just doing the research, finding out have they been blogging? What is that that I can connect with them on? And then being able to reach out to them, demonstrate that you did your research, meet them meet them in person, actually show them that I'm someone who is genuinely interested in their mission. And once they see that, they'll go above and beyond to help you get that job. 
Yeah, and, and related to that too, if like we talk about storytelling a lot, I know we repeat it a lot. If you if you can identify someone that can relate to your story and you have a compelling story, a lot of times they'll go out of the way to help you if you've presented it very well. Um, and to his point about it's not just sending five emails that sound the same to everybody you really have to make them personalized and that takes 30 minutes it might take an hour it might take over an hour um but if it's always worth it for the most part i, I think he might have gotten like two to three responses so like a 60 you know percent response rate is pretty good and if you do you know send out 25 35 emails a week you know it's not going to take you that long to find a job. And then, you know, to Hasid's point, you know, the best point that you can get to is once you have multiple offers and you have leverage to be able to negotiate, um, you know, that's an even more powerful position that both of these guys were able to, to implement. Here's another thing that is perhaps less intuitive about the world of tech, particularly the world of startups, early stage startups, something that may not be intuitive to people who have been going through things like investment banking or medicine or these things that are more highly structured is there is a lot of relationship building and relationship building is not a direct process it's i mean if you're thinking of in terms of sales it's oftentimes a long lead time you know you build relationships habitually because you think of it as an investment that may have compound interest over time, but you have to to find a way to actually purchase that investment. That's often an email that is heartfelt. Um, talk a little bit more about that, because I think this is actually something that's really crucial. It seems like it's come up time and time again on the Breaking Into Stars podcast is this idea of building relationships with people, not in an artificial or manipulative or transactional way. Um, I mean, life is about building relationships but of course in if you're talking about breaking into startups it's a it's a necessary precondition often to getting one of these desirable jobs if you don't have an on paper resume that fits into a single page and will allow you to you know easily get your foot in the door and and in front of a whiteboard at one of these companies yeah, for sure. Um, and I think Ruben actually could tell you like some of the stuff he's done on Twitter. But like in today's world, we live where there's so many opportunities for us to connect with people who could add value to us and vice versa. We could add value, add value to them as well. And so, uh, which is a win-win. Yeah, exactly. And you always you don't you never want to approach uh, reaching out to someone on Twitter or LinkedIn and always just asking for something. You want to make sure that um, you do enough research where you could offer value to them as well but all three of us have used twitter like facebook linkedin to make those connections and then you build those connections over time let's say you start following someone on twitter who blogs about or tweets about a certain topic right maybe they're passionate about um i don't know education right and you retweet their tweets you like them maybe you mention them in comments that are related to what they're tweeting about then over time they're going to start noticing you and they see that hey he's passionate about the same things as um, i am and then uh twitter has a dm option right so once you connect with them once they know who you are you could just start uh speaking to them directly and then um in, the, in that conversation you could also mention that hey i've noticed that you've spoken a lot, a lot about education i'm actually uh learning this new skill set and i, I want to break into startups uh i noticed that your company has these positions open do you think 
like you could put me in touch with someone on their team that I could speak to. Yeah, um, and, and related to what you brought up before, you know, I know that sounds a li- like in that that does that's definitely effective. That's kind of like a traditional like transactional type of approach. Um, and I used to always I used to always believe in the kind of like emotional bank account concept where like you know I make all these deposits into your emotional bank account that are you know favors for you, and then. I do that because whenever I'm ready to withdraw, I want to make sure I'm not in a deficit and cause a strain in our relationship. And I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. It's not the worst thing, but you never want to have transactional relationships. I think part of the reason why um, we've been able to build uh, a strong community of over like 4,000 members in a short amount of time is because, you know, at the end of the day, we just care about helping a billion people or and and with no expectation in return like we just want to hear someone's story figure out how we can help them and do whatever we can to get there and so whenever we send an email to someone it's not always like hey this is what i'm building you know how can you help me it's more like hey i know congratulations on your new announcement here um you know we're friends with these people here do you want to meet them you know and if we do want to put in a plug, which sometimes we don't even put in a plug, we'll say, you know, by the way, we are also doing this. They might be able to help, too. But a lot of times it's just more like, hey, here's this this person that we can connect you to. You want that intro? Cool. If you don't want it. All right. Cool. Um, you know, let's stay in touch. Well, this gets back to the nature of why the startup community is appealing is because a lot of the most successful companies the way that they're built is that their philosophy is to create more value than they can capture. And that's in stark contrast to an investment banking company or like a trading company. But related to that, though, I, I did the same thing for investment banking. To get investment banking, I sent out 1900 sure. to get in. Sure. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist within those places, but the, the, the nature of a trading business is more zero-sum than the positive sumness of like a Facebook or an Airbnb or Twitter. I mean, these companies have to be platform companies. It's in their best interest to become a platform company. And so what that does is it gives those companies uh, a a modus operandi of make more value than they can capture, which emanates out to the employees, which emanates out to the entire ecosystem, and in my opinion makes Silicon Valley a more enjoyable place to be than... You know, a finance-based uh, based, uh, city. But so, so I want to talk a little bit more about startups themselves. We've been talking about breaking into startups. So I want to talk about startups themselves and why it is desirable to break into them. There is a lot of hype around the idea of a startup today. It has become fashionable, but there's also a lot of substance, and that's what I want to insist on in this episode and in talking about your show, what are the substantive features of a startup business that make them so appealing to you? I mean, obviously there is the sexiness and the hype and stuff, but what is, what's the substance? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, you know, there's a lot like the technology industry is booming and there's a lot of amazing companies that have been created. Um, you know, there's about 3 billion people that are online now, 7 plus billion people in the world. I um, mean, right now, there's a lot of people that have a supercomputer in their pocket that's a mobile phone. Um, what makes us very excited is as we get closer to global connectivity, um, 
you know, up until this point, there's been a lot of startups have, that have created companies that are nice to have. But as people from non-traditional backgrounds get more connected, um, a lot of these companies that have been successful are um, laser focused on the problem and are going to be focused on problems that are neat to have versus nice to have. And so um, once these people that are coming from these communities get the skills for these different roles that they may or may not have been aware of, um, some of them will go on to found companies. Some of them will be helping other people build companies. But our belief is that the problems that they're going to be focused on are going to be further down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And because technology is scalable, um, you can literally scale something to billions of people or millions of hundreds of millions of people with a team of 50 people, uh, for example, with WhatsApp. So I'll say that's like really exciting to, to me and team one Arthur can elaborate. Yeah. And I think another point to make about startups is, um, a lot of the times they're bootstrapping or the founders came together to execute on the mission. So when they look at people to bring on and join their teams, um, a lot of the times they'll value your skill and what you can contribute contribute versus your um, resume beforehand or how many degrees you have. So in that sense, you can if you if you can join a startup and contribute from day one, they'll give you that shot. Maybe it's gonna be a trial period. Maybe you might have to volunteer and work for free for the first couple of months but at the same time you, you can work on like breakthrough technologies like driverless cars and if you came from a non-traditional background you might not be able to work on that problem let's say at google but there's plenty of startups that are maybe a team of five six people where you can get your first shot and then that kind of starts the ball rolling because now you can use that experience to um, help grow that team and then if you decide to move on to a different company after a couple of years uh, then you already have this experience and deep industry knowledge and i think startups have they have that unique um, opportunity versus some of the bigger corporate c- companies where they want you to spend three four years doing a, the same job day in day out before you can even get promoted to do the next level and then the next level and so on and, and part of the reason why we're excited about you know the podcast and sharing the stories is like yeah it's going to help demystify the process for people with not traditional backgrounds but on the other hand with hiring managers you know it's also going to help them you know understand you know a lot of the struggles that people have gone through um, because a lot of times it's hard to understand those if you're not from those communities or you don't spend time in those communities and a lot of times you'll be able to see additional value in addition to the skills that these people have developed and potentially create even deeper pipelines to be able to help these people break in so it won't just be a a route in for just startups maybe even the googles and the facebooks and the other companies will be excited about hiring these people as well and so we're actively working with um people in that regard what are the ways that you all see the media portray startups like for because there's a lot of people who are outside of tech and their view into tech is like watching silicon valley or something i don't know something war something something that is much i mean silicon valley is like almost like a it's somewhat honest almost flattering presentation of silicon valley relative to other movies i don't know um uh what was that one that came out recently deus ex machina Mm -hmm. Like that's that's a pretty bleak view of where Silicon Valley is heading. Uh, I think there are like a lot of external criticism, like uh, negative views from outside of the the tech world looking in. Um, but how do you feel the media portrays startups? 
Yeah, and part of our motivation for starting this podcast was we felt like there was a big gap in uh, pers- like media's perception or like people's perception of what startups are. Um, if you tune into like a podcast or YouTube shows or interviews, everyone is obsessed with founders. Um, basically, That's right. the, the, the new That's hottest right. thing is, hey, go ahead and quit your job and go start a company, right? right. And it's sexy because, hey, Mark Zuckerberg did it, right? He dropped out of college and then he built Facebook, which is one of the largest and most successful companies in the world. But for every Mark Zuckerberg, there's also thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who attempted, they spend multiple years working on that project and then they ultimately fail or they come short because they didn't have the execution and the team around them to bring that vision to reality. And if you tune into the current media, newspapers, blogs, um, everyone wants to be a founder, right? But people kind of fail to realize that in order to build a technical product, you need to have a whole team. You can't just outsource the development to the third world country and then have them build you an app. And then once the app is there, you're going to get users on day one, right? <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of people have that misconception. And part of our goal is to focus on the people building the products. Um, and for every CEO, there's hundreds of employees working at that company. So we want to feature and highlight the stories of everyday people who have their own challenges and struggles and who acquired the skills necessary to build these products. And this will give a much fuller uh, picture to the people outside that, hey, this is what a product manager does. This is what a designer does. This is what customer success person does. And then once they realize that, hey, there's a whole team building this, it's not just uh, one person, then hopefully there's a sort, a sort of a epiphany where they realize that, hey, do I, can, uh, they could evaluate themselves and be like, do I have all these uh, expertise in all these areas? If not, then at least I know who to bring on my team. Yeah. And, and we're not saying like, don't go start companies. It's just like everybody's not built to start companies. Um, and you know, we're not here to say who's built for it, who's not built for it. It's just a matter of like, you know, this is a team effort. Everybody talks about teams. So why don't we highlight teams and not just the founders and talk about why we were collectively able to build this into a success and scale to this in a short amount of time. And that's why we feel our community has been so strong so quickly and it's going to continue to grow in that regard. So I completely agree with everything you guys just said. I and I love the emphasis on the team because, so speaking from my personal experience, so I started this podcast in part out of like the frustration and the resentment of not really enjoying the places I was working and just thinking like, okay, the only solution here is for me to go off on my own and start something on my own and just do my own thing. And... Um, the thing is like since then it's over time realized like oh my gosh this is really isolating and the business that i built i enjoy it but it's super isolating it's a one kind of one man show and like i've thought about ways to scale it and make it a multi person business or something but it's kind of like i don't know it's a podcast i would have to think of different ways to turn it into a, a multi person business and also i worry sometimes like this is not really preparing me for the the idea of starting a company like starting a real company because starting a company is all about managing people talking to people having relationships with people and i think that it's very easy to get wrapped up in that uh that myth of the founder and wanting to be that person that starts something i think there was an element of that in my my own situation where i was just like I don't want to be in this corporate machination anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. And 
you know, over time I've realized like this, I may have like taken a step that may have like in some ways put me back a few steps because the, just basically the rejection of, I don't want to deal with anybody else. I'm just going to do everything on my own. That is not a scalable strategy. And, you know, as you said, like the, the idea of like, of breaking into startups as being something where you don't necessarily have to be a founder. You can be a customer success person. You can be a, uh, a product manager. You can be in sales. You can do whatever even if you want to start a company eventually, that is a much smoother, perhaps healthier trajectory for the average person. Yeah. To, to If they want to start a company eventually. Definitely. And I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head by saying that um, when you're a sole contributor, you don't really know things that you don't know, right? So just the three of us working together on the podcast, there have been numerous times when one of us like has this vision or this idea idea for let's say for us to do one thing and then the other two people will bring this like one of us to the other side and make them see that perspective and we'll try it right and then looking back you'll say oh my god like i know that like i thought one thing but my co-founders helped me understand uh this problem from a different perspective and now we created a better product so when you're working on teams i think one of the biggest things that you get out of it is you get to surround yourself with talented people and you become the average of the people that you work with so if you're working on your on your own your growth is almost limited mm-hmm. by the by the people you interact with but if you work on a team with people who come from from different backgrounds like in ruben's case uh, he came from um, a classical mu- musician uh, background and in our case we came more from the finance world so combining those skill sets we've learned a ton from each other just by working on this uh, project together so i think it's very valuable for uh, our listeners to realize that it's okay to take a couple years uh, and learn from the people who have done it before founders who have built companies and sold them or uh, built successful companies and then if you want to go on on your own you love the ammunition to build these products and not and decrease the likelihood of you failing yep and and related to the thing about teams you know a lot of people talk about teams to start companies um but something else that we talk about is active listening versus passive listening you mm. know like you know Arthur team and i um you know we were able to come from not just backgrounds and break in but something that we haven't really talked about as much but we do highlight in some blog posts is that we deliberately said you know what do we need to do in order to move to San Francisco? You know, we want to do everything as a team. What skill set do you want to learn? What skill set am I going to learn? This guy was like, okay, I'm going to do front end. I'm going to do back end. Ruben, you learn sales, distribution, marketing, whatever. We'll come together. Maybe we all need to be full stack. Maybe you need to learn a little bit of front end. So we like talked about the diversity of skill sets, mm-hmm. not just to start a team, but we want our listeners like to understand that, you know, just because you're not starting a company doesn't mean you can't form teams and networks that mm-hmm. support each other but then you know we've known each other for maybe like five years now um or four or five years now um and so let's say that one of our listeners listens to the podcast and they break in you know isolation is felt not just in starting a company it's felt working within a company too it's important to really not just have allies within your your own startup but also have friends in your community or other startups that can help you balance and talk about what they're learning from there because a lot of times people leave corporate environment thinking you know what i don't want to deal with politics ever again right but if anything sometimes it's like even um, more magnified at a startup because every single move has such a big impact you really have to understand how to navigate and talking to other colleagues that have navigated this i can't tell you uh 
how many times these guys have helped me navigate through things. Um, and, and teamwork at the end of the day is, is what it's all about. Um, and having that diversity of skill sets to build each other up is important. Yeah, and also when it comes to building a product, um, a lot of the times um, we typically based, um, base our decisions based on our past experiences. So let's use our podcast as an example if we're catering to a wide audience and a lot of the times um, we want to want people from diverse backgrounds who have been marginalized in tech um, to tune in and listen to our podcast sometimes um, Ruben will come in and say Timor like your emails are too formal or your Facebook posts are too formal to our Facebook community and people from those backgrounds will not be able to relate to or to the message and you want to achieve what you want to achieve if you keep it more formal and just feedback like that, having his perspective and uh, having Arthur tell me, uh, provide me constantly the, f- like the feedback on how we can all do things better, having that feedback loop makes the product at the end of the day way better than you trying to build something on your own. And not and not to be the dead horse, you know, like a lot of people talk about homogenous thinking in our manifesto. We talk about how great minds don't think alike. And there's a lot of people ha- that have like really good intentions when they want to um even build a company right like as the world gets more connected let's say that people don't have the technical skills and i want to create a product to reach the spanish market but i don't know about dominicans cubans puerto ricans whatever you know if i don't have someone that can tell me what that's about my message might come off tone deaf and the whole thing might tank right and you you want to make sure you're not coming off offensive you want to make sure that you are communicating in a way that's relatable and communication is key to building relationships so um i know we've talked a lot about soft skills on a on a technical podcast um but at the end of the day it is about whole brain whole brain thinking even when you're building products um peter teal talks about something called the diversity myth which as I understand, is the idea that in certain places, namely Silicon Valley, you are allowed to say you are diverse if you are talking about having a multifarious composition of races, genders, and you strive for equality among them. And he says, but that is the limit that we have of diversity if if you are di- if you are talking about diversity in the sense that you have a different opinion about diversity, like you believe that um, it's okay for some companies to be uh, one gender or one race, uh, you know, as soon as you start saying that that type of thing is, thing is acceptable, you are no longer an accepted uh, type of person yourself. So he he he, and that's not a statement on one of those uh, types of things, but he's he's just saying that there are certain, like, you know, you, you, you can't, uh, there's a certain limit to the, 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 the types of companies that you can build in terms of the hom- homogeneity. And the reason he brings that up is because he argues that in PayPal, one of the reasons that his team was able to move really fast was because they had this homogeneity of thinking. And look, speaking personally, I'm a fan of diversity. I would not want homogeneity of opinion. Um, but you have to admit, like that's kind of un, like an appealing argument. It's like kind of a strong argument. Like if you have this team that 
sort of thinks all the same way and you, you know you can you can iterate really quickly you can because the person who is leading the team doesn't really have to ask for consensus he doesn't really have to strive for consensus he can just say i know everybody's with me because they all think the same so uh i don't know do you do you guys think that's interesting at all or do you think that's like at least an appealing thought to consider um i think um you should always consider things that are presented um and without having fully read peter thiel's um piece I, I wouldn't comment on that but to your point i think that anybody that's focused on we think that when every anybody that's focused on diversity initiatives shouldn't be placing people that are diverse into a team just to fill a number mm. because a lot of times that creates perceptions that are actually even more hurtful where people within the team will be like oh the only reason why you're here is because you went through this program or because you're filling the seats and we have to have x number of black spanish women into this company so you definitely shouldn't do that um i think what you shared is interesting um but don't think that uh, we can comment on this since we haven't fully read the piece yeah and i think just to um add another perspective to this um I think at the end of the day, every founder wants to build the best product possible. And there's a lot of hidden geniuses who do come from these diverse backgrounds that get overlooked. And I don't like I can see the point where uh, you can move faster if everyone in the room thinks the same way you do. But we, you have to ask yourself, like, but do you really want that? Do you want to be on a team where everyone just agrees with you? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to be a team where you guys are like moving forward, but also challenging every little piece um, about the product? which in my mind will create will result in a better product so then people come up with different ideas some of them will get rejected rejected sometimes you'll have to debate for maybe like an hour or a couple of hours but at the end of the day your consumer will get a better product as a result of that so i think you just have to ask like what kind of culture what kind of product what kind of company you want to be building yeah yeah and to add to timor's point so timor and i are twins we're identical we <laughs> lived together for over 25 years and you would think that because we're identical we're the same size i mean people get us confused all the time and we always have different opinions right Mm -hmm. our communication has been improved because we could kind of almost read each other's minds sometimes but i think that comes from just spending a lot of time together and being close and like having Ruben uh, kind of be around us all the time over the last five years, we've been able to develop the same kind of communication level with Ruben as well. And then we could, we don't need to necessarily like go into like the full sentences. We could just use like kind of abbreviations. But I think a lot of that just comes from um, us knowing each other really well and being accepting and being open to each other's ideas. And we argue all the time as well. Like uh, Ruben uh, sometimes disagrees with us. Timur disagrees with me. Um, and so it's hard to imagine a workplace where everyone has the same opinion or agrees. Um, it might be idealistic in some ways that, hey, everyone thinks the same. Maybe they communicate in similar ways, but a lot of their communication just comes from uh, being around each other for that, for that amount of time. And if you have people from diverse backgrounds who all work together, at some point they're all just gonna vibe and they're gonna like jive well together and gonna move to the uh, kind of move towards the same goal. But what they bring to the table is one might have been an army general, right? One might have been um, a single parent. Might one might have been a basketball player. So when you bring all these different backgrounds together and they all could relate and speak to each other and understand each other, then you get this like 10x effect. Um, yeah, no, and I think what they said was was amazing, and and related to the last thing about 
um, the different backgrounds that people come from, a lot of and the imposter syndrome that we talked about before, a lot of people shy away from that background, even when they do get in, um, even when they did get the courage to come through. But what we encourage people to do is actually trust their struggle and like actually own that and wear that as a badge of pride because your unique big background, your unique, your unique story is actually your superpower within the organization. It's a completely fresh perspective, like you said, like an army general, a basketball player someone that was formerly incarcerated like that that type of stuff is you know something that a lot of people haven't seen Mm -hmm. and whenever you're focused on solving problems you know if you if you always approach it the same way and and that's not resonating you know you do need different perspectives to solve it or to iterate on it so yeah you know the reason i find this topic just kind of interesting is because teal talks about startups as cults like you're trying to build a cult and I saw this at Amazon. Like, Amazon is like a 20-year-old company, but, man, they have scaled their culture. And you feel it in every single gigantic office building that Amazon uh, inhabits in downtown Seattle. And, it, you know, working there for the short stint that I did, I was so fascinated. Like, aside from nationalism, like United States nationalism, I have never encountered a culture that was so big and so distinctive. I've heard the same thing about Microsoft, heard the same thing about Facebook. And I just wonder, like, what is it about these companies and these were startups at a certain point where they were able to scale the culture? And, you know, certainly in Amazon, there were, like, people from all kinds of backgrounds. And you see this at every, every big tech company. Of course, there's people from all kinds of backgrounds because you know over overall you're optimizing for people who are really smart who can get things done and you're going to find those in all kinds of backgrounds um but i do wonder sometimes like what is it like do you guys have any insights on what is it that gets these companies to have a distinctive culture that scales yeah i I think culture is probably one of the most important pieces of a company because when everything is going well in your company culture can be kind of overlooked because you're profitable, you get a lot of users, but when things are not going well and they're going downhill, culture is probably one of the only things that will keep your team together and keep you focused on executing and turning it around. So I think with a lot of these companies, and I think um, one of the founders of Airbnb said that after Y Combinator, it took them a couple months to get their first engineering hire. And um, it's important because the t- people that you do hire, they're going to be hiring the next person online and you want to instill the values of your company and make sure that people who are joining your teams, they um, believe in the mission. They believe in like the type of, types of things that you want to promote. It could be diversity. It could be uh, being scrappy from the beginning. It could be inclusive of all kinds of backgrounds. But as uh, you start building, as you start building your scaling your own team, those are the types of things that are going to be valued, and then they're going to be looking for those things in the next person they're bringing on board. So I think it's very important to um, make sure you get the culture right. Yeah, and, and related to that, no, I fully agree with everything that team was said. I think that there is a difference between a culture and a community. I mean, a cult and a community, um, and I think that. Um, you know, when at least when I think about a cult, I think about it as like people following one leader and the mission that they've put through. But when I think about community, you know, at least when we think about leadership, um, it's not necessarily like, hey, you guys need to follow me because I have the skill and I'm the best engineer in the group and you guys need to follow me. It's more like 
I just hired, you know, this person and I'm going to teach everything that I know to that person until I'm useless and then I have to learn new or I need until I learn and need to learn a new skill and then I empower that person to be a leader themselves and then they espouse that to the other people. Mm-hmm. Then I learn something that the other person was doing before me until that person is grows out of their role and then everyone within the community is a leader and that's still spreading the message. So the message is still spread throughout the organization but when we think about our community it's not necessarily like hey everybody follow Archer team or not it's more like no you guys are all amazing leaders yourselves why don't you guys go forward and spread the message and build your own people that have this philosophy using your own twists and your own tweaks and you know we all grow and and spread this message together it's not just following us you guys are we're learning from you just like you guys are learning from us What's the connection between boot camps and startups? I actually kind of I was having a conversation with a coworker a couple of days ago, and um, I was telling him that kind of I came from a boot camp and that I'm starting this podcast that kind of focuses on people who came from non-traditional backgrounds and who acquired the skills. And um, he was pretty fascinated with my story, and he was like, "Yeah, that's awesome that I didn't didn't even know that our company hired bootcamp grads, right?" Um, but one thing that I've learned over the last few months is that my, my company actually has uh, a number of different bootcamp grads who've, uh, who who are now working in data science, product management, design, uh, engineering. Uh, we have probably over 10 people now from all sorts of different boot camps and everyone is kind of uh, like it, it, it's not super publicized but I think the one thing to highlight is that the reason people are not aware of it is because everyone does their job well and everyone is qualified and everyone is working as a team member so to the people either on the team or adjacent teams they can't tell a bootcamp grad from someone who came from like a different background maybe had a CS degree so I think that's something important to highlight is that we're not adv- advocating for bootcamp grads to be handed a job or for some reason they get um, they get a job kind of and they, they go through a separate interview process we want bootcamp grads we want people to get an equal opportunity and then it's up to them to prove that they could actually perform the job um, and so far with my company it's been uh, working out really well we have uh, like amazing product managers amazing designers who've came from non-traditional backgrounds and that makes our teams much richer and more successful yeah and and related to that too you know because our education system can't keep up with the pace of technology um and boot camps exist right now you know it's not necessarily boot camps are the only alternative forms of education there's online courses there's you know books that people have followed to get into the thing at the end of the day it's about what you can do um and while these are the models that exist now there will be other models in the future and it's more like instead of focusing on this rigid profile and no knock against college, we definitely think if you're following a college route, you should do that. And there's a lot of talented people that go through college, but you know, if you have a strong GitHub portfolio versus someone that has a four year degree, both people should get the shot. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to just people have been throwing the word skill gap, skill gap a lot. And in today's market, what bootcamps do really well is they they have the pulse on the types of roles and the types of jobs that startups are looking for. So a lot of them will say, hey, like, I know these companies need engineers or I, I think they or these companies need growth marketers or designers. And then they come up with a program that teaches someone in a matter of 
three to four months, that skill set. And for your listeners, I don't know how many of them are familiar with a bootcamp, but a lot of these bootcamps, you're in class um, from 9, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, like Hack Reactor uh, has class six days a week. App Academy, which is the school that I did, we have class five days a week. So, and in total, you're probably spending close to 100 hours a week um, just focusing on, on acquiring that single skill set. So if you add up the number of weeks over, let's say, three or four months, the total number of hours is, is over a thousand. So in a matter of a thousand hours, you can teach someone a skill if they're focused on, a, focused on practicing it, building projects. And then what happens is, Maybe some startups, they'll value a traditional computer science degree, but if they're not getting enough candidates who are applying with computer science degrees, and they also have candidates now who did a bootcamp, who know React, who know JavaScript, who can build these apps from day one, then they're going to give them the shot because they, they have deadlines to hit. They need these products built. And if someone can come in and uh, help them um, move the mission along, they'll hire them. So that, that's what it comes down to. And also related to things about, you know, bootcamps having the pulse on on what's in demand the reason why that's very important is because the automation of jobs is a very real thing jobs is a very big theme in our new political agenda since you brought up theo and a lot of people are talking about bringing these certain types of jobs back to america but if you look at you know the automation of skills that's a very real thing and a lot of people that are going through traditional uh education systems sometimes are being prepared for roles that won't exist in the future and if you look at these boot camps they are doing everything that they can to identify the skills that are going to be demanded in the future and it's very important to do that because if you are a marginalized person um, you will get left behind by this tech wave that's coming um, because the professionals aren't going to be the ones that are going to be left behind and we, this is, can actually be an opportunity if you start focusing on developing these skills and you know it does it's not going to take you four years you could actually do it in three months um, and then you know go forward yeah the optimistic way of looking at it is that these boot camps condense a coding education into a very short period of time the pessimistic way of looking at it I would say is that these 12-year, 16-year education cycles often prepare people for no jobs that are that are out there, which is kind of staggering. Um, and a lot of student loans, which and, is also and a lot staggering. Of, a lot of student loans, uh, a lot of inefficiency. But, I mean, once you see the amount of inefficiency for what it is, in some sense it can make you optimistic because you can say, oh, well, like, you can't, this, this isn't, there's not some, like, inherent problem here i mean there's a lot of problems in terms of like the the maybe the way the education system is structured right now but it's not like humanity as a whole is incapable of figuring this out and you just look at the efficiency of boot camps and that I, I don't know i was when i did a series of shows about boot camps early on in software engineering daily and i was just so fascinated with how efficient they are relative to traditional education system but we need to harp on that um we're we've got I don't know ten fifteen minutes left. The I'm curious. So at this point, each of you have gotten some traction in the world of startups, and my estimation by talking to you guys and reading what you've written, you are very um, engulfed in the startup literature. You've read books, you've read blog posts, you've listened to podcasts. You understand the common. Um, 
words that people use to discuss startups and talk about them. But now that you've worked at them for a while, what are some of the things that you feel the literature gets wrong? I wouldn't say that the literature gets wrong, um, but I would say something else that we talk about in the manifesto is... Um, Give a manifesto? Yeah, the Reckon Startups Manifesto. <laughs> I um, didn't see we, that. We, we released it in a quiet way. It's on LinkedIn. Um, we'll be releasing it in a much more public way. Um, but what we talk about in it is um, sometimes rejection is your destiny helper. And because automation of jobs is a real thing and because most startups don't become the Facebooks and Googles of the world, um, a lot of them are going to fail. And you got to get very comfortable with the fact that a lot of people get laid off and they don't talk about it. Um, but that's something that you, you need to get comfortable with and not see it as the worst thing in the world. Because you could do everything that you can. You know, you could do the best that you can. You could have you know, done your research, et cetera, and still get in a situation where you lay off. That doesn't mean that you're a failure. You know, you got to trust your struggle and keep moving forward because if things don't work out, it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't the right time. When you look back, it'll make sense. So I, I think for me, that's probably one of the biggest things that jumped out to me is getting comfortable with that. Um, and it's, it's been demonstrated throughout our experience that, you know, it, it goes in a positive direction and, and you have clarity when you look backwards. So, yeah. And I, I think just to add to that, um, I think I pretty much, pretty much anything, um, anyone can call their project a startup. And I think for our listeners and even your listeners, they can probably relate to the fact that there's different types of startups out there. And um, I think from the from the outside looking in, every, everyone might think that oh, like this person is working for a startup, it must be he must be doing great. But there's different categories. There's startups that have been funded. There's startups that are bootstrapping. There's startups that have like strong leaders who've built companies before. And then there's uh, companies that are like pursuing an idea and they're very disorganized and there's no structure to their hiring processes or how they're building and executing the vision. So I think from from the outside looking in you also have to make sure that you're qualifying the companies you're interviewing with or you're not just accepting a job from a startup because they gave you an offer and you're like from that point on everything's going to be great you need to do your due diligence and actually understand um what is this company doing uh how do they go about uh, building this product or executing on the mission and uh, making sure that the company is going to be a good fit for you and you're not just doing it because you're um, like obsessed with the startup notion because startups are hard there's lo- you have to put in a lot of work and uh, to Ruben's point a lot of them do fail so you need to know exactly why you're joining that team is it because of the money or is it because of you want to learn from your coworkers, or do you want to just work on that specific problem and become really good at virtual reality or AI or whatever that is? Yeah, and to add to Ruben Timur's point, um, one of the mission, uh, one of the like main goals behind our podcast is to ask our guests who've been through it about kind of what, how, how did they go about evaluating these companies? How did they go about um, learning this new skill? And we want to kind of create a scalable way and a community that helps each other and shares that knowledge. Because when three of us went through this process and we had a lot of lessons that we learned. Um, 
unless we wrote about it, unless we started this podcast, people wouldn't find out about it. And then people would have to learn a lot of that stuff for themselves. And that's the goal behind the Breaking Startups community is that we don't need to necessarily create all the content ourselves. We're going to have um, our members, uh, we could empower them to share a lot of their experiences, their stories, uh, their struggles, and then make it more uh, kind of accessible to other people. Because even though we've had struggles along the way, not everyone has the same struggles. So not everyone would be ad- able to identify with what three of us have gone through, but if we encourage our members to share their own struggles, then that's going to enable other people who are outside of tech to resonate with those struggles and also believe that they could do it as well. And that's super important that until we saw examples of people like us do well in startups, uh, we had imposter syndrome, we were doubting ourselves. But then once we saw people like ourselves doing these boot camps, breaking in, getting jobs, all of a sudden all that fear went away. And, and, and there's a lot of things that people don't talk about, like on the Hasiza store, the, just negotiating an offer, um, understanding how equity works, right? Understanding how um, you know how to interview in a different way, how to tell your story, like a lot of those types of things. People, um, you know, might write briefly in a blog post, but it hasn't really been broken down, at least to my knowledge and to our knowledge. And so, um, to Arthur's point, we just want to crowdsource all of that and um, make it relatable. Yeah. So, as we're winding down. Since you all have some perspective into the finance world, you spent enough time in finance, you probably examined the past and saw that, you know, our economy has had cycles, bubbles, crashes. Obviously, you look at 1999 and people thought startups were over, like no longer fashionable, the bubble has popped. And then you look back uh, two years from where we are today, or one year, even depending on who you're you're thinking about, your who, who you're, whose dialogues you're following, and you see people saying like, "Okay, we're here with the bubble. The next bubble is here. Like it's going to pop again." And there's still no bubble. And I look at it from a technological standpoint, from a fundamental standpoint, and I'm like, "We've still got all these trends that have so much gas left in the tank, like cloud computing, mobile." not to mention stuff like VR, AR, self-driving cars, whatnot. All these things are going to add so much value. So I'm curious, you know, since you guys all have looked at finance, are you starting to get the feeling that this like this cyclical nature maybe doesn't doesn't apply to 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 tech anymore like or uh you know, maybe this 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 the cycles are we uh, I don't know. It's just a longer cycle, or um, I don't know. What, to what degree? To what degree do you feel that tech is cyclical? And I mean, do you feel like that we're we're susceptible to some kind of bubble, or what would be the cause? Or maybe maybe it's an existential thing that's outside the realm of tech. Maybe it's something related to to a larger scope of of financing or something. To, to your point, there is a lot of gas in the tank. Um, you know, Neve Drawer from ProductCon, one of our guests, he does have a great post that talks about that called When Exponential Progress Becomes Reality. And he talks about the second half of the chessboard and a lot of these things that are going to be coming um, up, if you want to read about that. Um, from my perspective and Team Arthur, I'm going to elaborate. Um, you know, tech is still cyclical, and I think that's evidenced by... Um, People, investors starting to focus less on, um, you know, just growth so much and more on profitability and companies that can demonstrate traction um, earlier versus just giving them a bunch of money and making just everybody just getting 
quick round. Um, and so there's, that's already starting to be evidenced. Um, and I think that um, even when there is a cycle that's going on a downward trend from a um, you know throwing money around perspective, you could see some of the greatest companies that were created during the the, the downward cycle, um, like the the Ubers and the Airbnbs of the world. So um, that's my perspective on it. Yeah, and I think you also have to look look at it from two perspectives the long term and the short term so in the short term there could be like a funding bubble maybe there's a lot of there's a lot of like money that venture capitalists have raised and they've been just throwing i think over the last couple of years uh this money at all these different ideas um and maybe there is some sort of bubble with uh investors shifting towards companies that may, might have um like more uh, better uh, numbers they're um working on more serious ideas but if you look on the on the long in the long term um the four out of the five uh, fortune the top fortune 500 companies it's apple it's amazon it's alphabet which is google and uh those companies are all using tech in some form to get a competitive advantage over the traditional companies that were in their place beforehand. So Amazon is now using machine learning, they're building drones to to create a competitive advantage over Walmarts of the world, over Barts and Nobles, and all those companies that fail to innovate. So I think in the future, you'll see more companies, more startups that probably don't even exist today. They will zero in on a certain problem. They'll be able to come up with a better solution and those companies are going to be like it's almost undeniably that there's going to be driverless cars maybe not in the next five years but in 20 30 years um there are going to be driverless cars and there's going to be millions of people out of jobs like the truck drivers who are not going to have those jobs so as a country we have to ask ourselves um what what kind of roles like do we want to create for those people uh how are we addressing how's our education system addressing uh, all all of these people who are going to be left behind unless they acquire the skill sets so in 10 15 years looking back at this period, it'll be pretty evident that those transitions, those uh, signs were on the wall, and people who entered the industry early on will be some of the front runners in uh, leading these corporations and creating solutions to these problems. I guess my, yeah, my take was pretty insular thinking in terms of just the bubble or the cyclical nature of just Silicon Valley. But if you think about like the the larger economy, like most most people never recovered from the 2008 housing crisis they're still in a recession uh the numbers may not capture it certainly not the stock prices of facebook amazon google and so on and and there's a lot of companies that you know people call that were they were calling unicorns that are actually like failing. yeah right i forgot what the term is that it's some like unicorpses or something like mm, that okay and to add to like the short-term bubble, right? Because you brought it up a few times. Um, so I think there's actually two very interesting forces. So on one hand, the startups need funding from investors, right? Because if you're uh, launching a company, then you need someone to pay for the servers to give you, to provide some initial capital. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the, the cost of starting a company is also coming down significantly, and you could start a company with much less resources, and you could just bootstrap it as well. So I think there's kind of two diametrically opposed forces. That on one hand um, the venture capital world still has an effect on the startup ecosystem, but 
on the other hand, since the cost and the barrier to entry is much lower now than it right. used to be, um, you can still have startup ideas that prove themselves to be successful and have traction. And these companies could do so well that they may not even need venture capital, right? right. We haven't seen too many examples of that yet, but it's coming because starting, um, if you have 100,000 saved up, you no longer need to raise a seed round. You could just yep. uh, bootstrap yourself until uh, a milestone. And then if you are if you have paying customers, then you may not even need to raise at all. So I think there's two forces at play. And the last, kind of the more we are self-reliant, the last there is an effect that, hey, some bubble or some sort of economic uh, crisis will affect the startup ecosystem. But I think it's still kind of in the working. So we'll, it'll take a few years to play out. I agree with that. And then and then like things like the Jobs Act is, is opening it up so mm. that you're not fully dependent on venture capital. You have syndicates that you can raise money from and things like that through AngelList and right. things like that. So, um, you know, a lot of skills and a lot of access to capital is starting to be democratized for the people. And so if we organize and we mobilize and we work together as a community, um, you know, we can do a lot of powerful things. Um, and that the venture capital community, again, is very important, but you may not always have to be fully dependent on it. Ruben, Arthur, Timmer, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you guys. And I really enjoy the Breaking Into Stars podcast. I wish you guys the best of success. And I think everybody who listens to Software Engineering Daily should check out Breaking Into Startups. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Thanks Jeff. Jeff. Thanks.